Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages, and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks, and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. It's the second week of April 1943. The Allies are doing well in North Africa, and Rommel knows that things have taken a turn for the worse. In the Far East, in Burma at least, the British Army is responding to Japanese infiltration of the Arakan, and on the home front, the newspapers carry news of air raids aplenty in Britain and overseas. However, as our German fighter ace, Heinz Nocker, notes in his diary, I flew for the Fuhrer, the air raids weren't exactly one-sided. The Americans made an attack on Bremen today. We took off with our bombs, and we had a chance to drop them when the flight is in close formation over the heart of Bremen, but not a single bomb registers. We immediately go into attack with our guns and make three runs at a fortress, and it finally catches fire. Southwest of Bremen, in a field near Bossum, it crashes. Four members of the crew parachute to safety, and our flight is credited with three more victories. It'll be a couple of weeks before we hear from Narker again. He's totally focused on each flight and how he's adding to the war effort. The sound of bomb-heavy aircraft lumbering into the skies is now a backdrop to everyone's daily lives. Still, people did try to carry on more or less as usual. In Notting Hill, for example, in London, Veer Hodgson is staying in touch with friends who've moved to the country, a natural consequence of the air raids. She recorded it all in a diary a diary showing how unimportant people in London and Birmingham lived through the war years, 1940 to 1945, written in Notting Hill. This week's entry starts with a quick recce of the pubs in North London. And what's not to like about that? Saturday, the 11th of April. It's a real Florentine spring. Went with Mrs Tees to find Dirty Dicks. Have longed wished to do this. It is a pub in the city with an ancient legend attached. In the 18th century, the story goes, a bride was to be married here. The wedding feast was laid. Some disaster happened to the bride, and the feast was never touched. Great was the sorrow of all, and the feast was left until everything went mouldy, rats and mice playing about among the viands. Tradition says it was shown to visitors, 
until all parties involved were dead. We found it opposite Liverpool Street Station. Dirty signboard outside. Descended to a vault underground. Men of all nations having a drink. No women there. But Mrs T bravely approached the bar and we had two glasses of port. We drank to her son in HMS Sussex and husband serving in India. We looked around. Innumerable sailors had scratched their names and ships on the walls. Old leather bottles, heavy with dirt, hung from ceilings. One old scallywag, seated on a barrel, gazed at us, much amused. In spite of the dirt and cobwebs, somehow the place was pleasing to the eye. Upstairs was another bar done in the old style, with notices inviting people to go below and see the old vaults, but no available history to buy during the war. I suggested the Chester cheese for lunch, not bombed. We poked our way up an alley, but no lunches on Saturday. Opened a sliding door, saw sanded floor and wooden settles. It looked expensive and no place for me. But we found ye old cock tavern in the Strand. Sort of 16th century inn. Old prints round the walls, a painting of Dickens, glass cupboards of old china and an ancient fireplace built in 1549. We had fish and potatoes and Christmas pudding. Not much of anything, but we enjoyed ourselves. Three shillings each. Then, walked through the devastated temple. The most serious scene of ruin concentrated on one set of historical buildings. Just appalling. Dr Remy and I had tea with Auntie Nell. He considered I was in an optimistic mood. I felt we ought to count our blessings. Sir Alfred Baker head of his legal firm, has died. He was chairman of the LCC and did much for the refugees. A whole family, friends of Auntie Nell, the Smallwoods of Birmingham, has just been drowned at sea. She was very upset. Actually, a little codfish this week. Not much taste, but we have enjoyed it. Cheese ration to be lowered. A warning last week. The all-clear led to two Anglo-American horses running amok. They were just passing Ladbroke Road Police Station when it boomed out. The horses started at a gallop. The brake broke and the unhappy driver could not hold them. They charged straight for the main road, crossed it and crashed into a tree at the corner of Holland Walk. When Miss Ashton passed, the ambulance was taking away the driver, other people still coping with the horses. When I arrived, both poor creatures were up Holland Walk, shaking with fright. One had a piece out of his shoulder and a damaged eye. The other was all of a tremble. A little boy had jumped clear and he was holding them while a woman was covering the uninjured one with a rug. No bones broken. The vet was putting stuff on the wounds of the other. Worthing has had bad raids. Miss Jones was going there to stay with two sisters. She wrote, but no reply. We seem fast turning Rommel out of Tunisia, and in about two months we shall attack Sicily, but perhaps this is too optimistic. It is fatal for me to get cheerful. Some awful disaster always follows rapidly. Veer's right to be a little bit reserved. The full rout of Rommel isn't over yet. According to radio broadcasts, which she would have heard, the Eighth Army is making considerable progress now, even though they're meeting stiff opposition from enemy armour. Regimental Sergeant Major Jack Ward knows all about violent attacks. 
entrenched with the 56 Heavy Artillery in North Africa. He's recovering from bullet wounds to his left arm, and to make things worse, he's got sepsis in his foot from an insect bite. Jack's also hearing news of progress at the front, but as for his own diary, well, he's not really in the mood for writing. April 9th. 15th anniversary today. (laughs) What a place to celebrate. Better look next year, we hope. Received airmail letter today. April 10th. Battle over on left flank. Have taken objective we went after. The wind has dropped and the sun is out. (laughs) Foot's too bad, though. Think the MO wants to send me to hospital. April 11th. Foot better today. Heard 8th Army took Safarks yesterday. Over by the end of the month, I should think. Poor old Jack. He's right to think things are looking up, but it'll be a good while yet before he can think about being shipped home. Let's rejoin Captain Bertie Packer on HMS Warspite. The Warspite's service generally consisted of routine patrols and training in the North Sea, but she's been undergoing a refit in Durban in South Africa this month. Since the war began, she sailed 160,000 miles, so it's definitely time for a brush-up. Captain Packer has just rejoined the ship, and now she's ready for the next stage of her journey. Monday 12th of April. Moved out of dry dock. Monday 16th of April. Made a short speech introducing myself to the ship's company. I think it was adequate, for twice they laughed. Once when I said, I cannot tell you which way we are going when we leave here, but this I can say, which, wherever way it is, it will be nearer to the enemy. They said a sort of concerted, ooh Off we went past the breakwater, with a nasty turn in shallow water at the corner, out to sea to pick up a fast convoy west of the Cape. I am much impressed by the ship's company and officers from what I have seen of them. Everything done quickly and quietly with no fuss. A great deal done in a few days. We only had from Monday to Friday to do the thousand and one things that have to be done after coming out of dry dock and refit. Ammunitioning, storing, oiling, cleaning out the refuse, etc. Did many exercises with aircraft as we cleared the harbour. I hope I am not mistaken, but I fancy that for once I shall not have an uphill task at all. Quite lucky, in fact, having four Royal Navy Lieutenant Commanders. In fact, five now. The First Lieutenant and Lieutenant Commander Hamilton, G, Blundell, T, and Blake, N. I had Hamilton at Whale Island. I know him to be first class, so quickly got him sent here while I was still at Whaley. It is also fortunate for me to have the ship for a couple of months, at least, to myself without an admiral and staff, and so get myself shaken down. The final stages of the war in Tunisia have, I hope, arrived, and if so, we may well be wanted soon in the Med. As we left the wall, an enormously fat lady arrived with a megaphone dressed in white. She was a lady mayoress, Mrs Ellis, and she stood up alone on the wharf, except for a bunch of workmen, and sang to the sailors through the megaphone. Kept singing. Pretty good, too. Apparently she sings all warships out of harbour, which is something new to me. That was Bertie Packer. Even now he's recognising shipmates who've sailed with him before. Within the services, men often move together. Guy Gibson comes to mind, choosing the men for 617 Squadron. I know this New Zealander, Les Munro. I'd like to have him. Oh, and Joe McCarthy. He's great. And there's Hoppy Hopgood from my old squadron. 
It was the same in the army too. So when Major General Oscar W. Griswold was transferred to the South Pacific, he didn't go alone. Griswold is taking over as commanding general of 14 Corps. As time goes on, he'll be leading the troops fighting in New Georgia, Bougainville and the Philippines. But to reach those far off places does take time. And in the second week of April 1943, that's where we find Griswold. Travelling. 11th April 1943. As per War Department radio orders, I've been relieved from 14 Corps and ordered to report to Officer Commanding South Pacific Area with least practicable delay. Took with me Colonel W.H. Arnold, G.S.C., as Chief of Staff, and Majors Jack S. Blocker and Ralph S. O'Ginn as aides. Left Fort Lewis at 0100 hours by train for San Francisco en route to Hamilton Field. 12th April, 1943. Now en route. Had a beautiful moonlight view of Mount Shasta. 13th April, 1943. Arrived Hamilton Field, 12.30 a.m. Got a car and went to Vallejo. There saw Mother, Joe, Charlie, and their families for about three hours. Returned to Hamilton Field at 0600 hours. Took off and converted B-24 at 8.13 p.m. with 13 passengers. But there's nothing, nothing to the superstition about the number 13. Lots of H2O. 14th April, 1943. Arrived Tickham Field at 0800 hours. Flight uneventful, except very cold. Left Hickam at 10.07 a.m. Arrived Christmas Island, 7.05 p.m. Flight uneventful. Lots of water. 15th April, 1943. Left Christmas Island, 6.09 a.m. Arrived Tutuila Air Base, island of Tutuila, part of the Samoan group, at 2.10 p.m. Took off from Tutuila, 3.17 p.m. Arrived Viti Levu, Fiji Islands, at 7.50 p.m. Airfield is named Nandi. Some beautiful islands and wonderful blue, green, and browns along the shorelines and reefs in these waters. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. to Harry Wilson, who's in Syria getting into his training as a cipher clerk. He'd been serving as a sapper, a Royal Engineer, in the number one well-boring section within the 10th Indian Division, part of British 10th Army, which covered Palestine, Syria, Iraq and Iran, a truly vast area. On the other hand, things were pretty quiet there by April 1943. Although well-boring sections were formed specifically to bore wells, lay pipelines and so on, their personnel were just as welcome as any to sign up for something new. And so once Harry has completed, and passed, his cipher course, it'll be farewell to the Royal Engineers, and Wells, and a switch to the Royal Corps of Signals. We join Harry as he's reaching the end of his lectures. There are half a dozen men being put through their paces with codes and ciphers. And there's an exam on the horizon. Saturday 10th. My cold lingers blasted. Carried on at brigade cipher, sorting out strings of figures. Competition is keen now that the newcomers have caught up on me and Penny. Jones, Blackburn, Taylor, Edwards and Hyatt. Jones is dull. He can never get his cage right. The first essential in this type of cipher. The others are all good and quick-witted. Quicker than I am, I have to admit. 
upset, perhaps. Edward Penny gets into difficulties now and again and sets the class laughing off with his expressions of self-disgust. But he's not as dull as Jones. Went on to double transposition in the afternoon. Mills called this low-grade cipher, used only for non-secret messages. Low or not, I found it more difficult than brigade, though. Jones found it easier. Something not right there. Monday 12th. Today we worked at corrupt messages in brigade and DT cipher. Corruptions are mistakes that occur in messages. They may be made by the enciphering operator himself or during transmission by the wireless operators, usually the latter. The chief thing in cipher, said Mills, is solving corruptions. The mathematical side of the business is easily learnt, but you have to use the grey matter when it comes to corruptions. Believe me, you get plenty, went on Mills. Practically every message that comes in has corruptions in it. Many are riddled with them. Fast-working Taylor came a cropper when he deciphered a message to read Citrep NTR. A little learning is a dangerous thing, Mills gloated. Caught you at last, Taylor. This puts a halt in your gallop. Taylor blinked through his spectacles at him. I know it reads funny, he admitted, but it might be right for all I know. It's just I have no idea what Citrep NTR means. None of us did. Mills explained it meant situation report, nothing to report, and that was the whole message. I know you weren't aware of this, chided Mills, but you ought to have known that it didn't make sense. Never, never, never. Hand over a message till you're sure it makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, there's something wrong with it. Or you. After this, we learnt the various ways of disguising short messages. My head is now bursting with information. At any rate, it's bursting. Thursday 13th, last day of the course. The day of reckoning. I felt uneasy. I had a ship sent to America instead of sending it off early in the morning. God knows what else. Captain Hoyle came in. Well, Sergeant Mills has recommended six out of seven of you for transfer to signals. Blackburn and Hyatt got the highest marks, but the rest of you didn't come far behind. He lowered the paper, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw that I had come forth after Taylor. Blackburn had got 90 marks. Taylor 80 and I 77. Satisfied with that, Captain Hoyle then addressed us on security. If we went below division, we would have a metal box with a lock and key for our documents. We were never to let it out of our sight. As far as possible, we should work in private. No unauthorised person, whatever the rank, should be allowed to watch us as we worked. In a few cases this mightn't be possible. We might be alone in a unit and be obliged to get somebody to help us. High-grade cipher, of course, was different. Under no circumstances must it be shown to anyone, not even signal or to staff officers. We were to never discuss cipher matters anywhere outside the office at any times. Even in the office we were not to unnecessarily discuss the contents of messages among ourselves. One cipher operator should not tell any other what he had enciphered or deciphered. Don't forget, concluded Hoyle, that we get the news before the generals do. Hoyle took us down to the cipher office and showed us the Typex machines that poured out tapes covered with jumbled letters. Only four of these in the whole Ninth Army, apparently. Wednesday 14th. Rain again. Heavy stuff. Taken in a general staff car to three core signals at Abla. In the Army no one knows. One day you travel in pain, the next in luxury. At Abla, which is not far from my old camp, Magdaloon, I dumped my kit and rifle outside the signal office and searched around till I found a door marked Knock and Wait, No Admittance. Nearby was another door labelled Officers. This sounded less forbidden, so I knocked and peeped in. Nobody there. Before I had time to do anything, a lieutenant colonel plunged in on top of me. Are you Wilson? He thundered. He had a red face that looked as if it just come out of the oven. Well, you left your rifle outside unattended. That's a very serious crime. A court-martial case. 
You should never leave your rifle out your sight for one moment. I looked at him in astonishment and he softened the bet. Rifles had been stolen within the last month by the Arabs. They were always stealing them. The colonel walked towards the door. I brought your rifle inside, he said. You'll find it in the operator's room in the passage. Saved you from a court-martial. And then he flung out as suddenly as he burst in. Well, this is three corps, I thought. Thursday 15th. This is real army life and no mistake with its disciplines, parades and inspections. Thank God I'm in ciphers and I escape a lot of it. But the whole thing makes me sick. Breakfast tasted, well, it didn't taste at all. And thank heavens there weren't too much of it. I must develop my sense of humour or go potty. Outside the cipher office I found Kay burning old cipher documents. Routine job, he explained. And you've got to make sure it burns. I got into a row the other day for letting a bit the size of your thumbnail blow away. Captain Lee put me on practice messages. He is watchful in particular, but not particularly interfering. His eyes are dull and expressionless, as if the light of happiness has died in him. He moves quietly from place to place every now and then and whistles a tune from Rigoletto. It must be the only tune he knows, for he never whistles any other, and the key is always the same. Friday 16th. Busy day I was given the job of registering messages that poured in, and I felt like an office boy starting work out for the first time. Some of the messages were trivial, others were of such magnitude that my hand shook as I wrote them in. One or two were so cryptic that in my view, they could have been sent in clear with perfect safety. This, for instance, from Corncorp to Bunker, come down to town before the big night, bring Percy. The party is on Monday. Don't bother about the firkin, whistle me lad of the sky clouds. Every message bore priority instruction written on it by the originator. Five priorities, routine important and such. When the messages were enciphered, they were then registered out, and I had to note such particulars as indicator, type of cipher used, number of groups, time cleared to signals, and the name of the operator. It was all very confusing, and I can't say I got much help from CSM Boardman, who was high-grade operator in charge. The in and out part puzzled me greatly. But aren't all messages that come in, in messages, I asked Boardman. No, replied Boardman tartly. Messages come in to go out, don't they? All messages written on pink forms are in ones. Out messages are written on white forms. This golden rule was of inestimable value until I received a message on a pink form addressed to 10 Indian Division. Addressed to ourselves, basically. If 10 Indian Division was the address he, but the message had gone out, how could it be coming in? Everyone in the office was hard at work. The book operators working in pairs and calling out calculations. CSM Boardman typing dexterously on his machine which jerked out tape on both sides until it lay in coils upon the floor. I hated to ask questions, but it had to be done. Boardman continued to type until he had finished. Then he turned to me and said rather impatiently, That's an out message, of course. I know, said I, but it's on a pink form. Boardman explained, It's coming line by signals. As far as they're concerned, it's an in message. As far as we're concerned, it's an out one. You'll have to give it a fictitious time of origin and put it in the register. I mean, fictitious times. I found things out by going back over the register. I see now why they required quick thinking type for this job. In the afternoon I learned how to stick down Typex tape on message forms for delivery in the wireless room. Boardman was so precise he never repeated his instructions. Be sure you stick it down as if it comes out of the machine, he warned. If you don't, they'll never get it out the other end. Stick it in rows of ten. Write it on the indicator at the beginning and at the end. Put it in a number of groups and return it to me for signing. Mind you, don't put this in the other indicator, or you'll have both of us in prison. Captain Lee wandered in at intervals, monotonously whistling his old tune from Rigoletto. The chief cipher offer is Captain Tregascus, but he's either in his office, next door or out. 
usually the latter. I wonder how he spends his time. While Harry's wondering what Captain Tregaskis is getting up to, our last thoughts this week are crossing in the post. Julia Blythe, or Ma, is writing to her son, Air Cadet David Nairn Blythe, who's training as an RAF navigator in Ontario, in Canada. Ma is making use of aircrafts, the service's international postal system, to try and stay in touch. Even news about life being normal is a form of good news. Ma's letters show just how important it was for these young, often inexperienced servicemen to feel supported from afar. 9th of April Dear David, Thanks for aircraft number three. Your description of the football match was very funny. I can't imagine you floundering about in mud, but Joan says it's good for the complexion, and I expect that's why you were called glamorous. I hope all the snow has gone now, and that you are enjoying sunny weather for a change. I had a letter from Aunt Jean yesterday, and they are all excited over you being in Canada, and hoping that you will be able to visit them. Joan took your photo to school, and all the girls thought you were so cute. June says that means good-looking. Uncle Willie is much better, but suffers from shortness of breath. He is working in a war plant now on night shift. Will you get any leave over there, or do your weekends compensate for that? June met Ian Pirry on the bus, and he was saying that Rita would have to go and train for munitions. Also, that George Stanley was now in the RAF as a compass adjuster. He and Muriel P have planned to marry in October. Do you think he will gate-crash that one? June has gone to a dance tonight held in McDonald's along Fetty's Row in aid of the infirmary. She sold quite a few tickets, something quite unusual. Ian Chisholm has had the same experience with a valentine as you had last year. Only June has been blamed as the culprit. She received a letter this morning with a very funny reply in verse. She definitely didn't send out any valentines. Sam was at Leith today with me, still a tough guy. Dad is still digging for victory, which seems to be in sight now. I'm hoping to get your first letter soon with all the news. Mrs Lyle was asking for you. Love from all at home, Ma. David is just 22. He's settling into life, lived overseas, and eventually he'll go on to be a navigator in a short Sterling, a four-engined bomber that gets a lot less attention than its more glamorous counterparts, the Halifax and the Lancaster. For now, he's attending different courses each day. There's a lot to learn. But it's also the kind of life you might expect a 22-year-old man to be living when he's not hunched over a plotting table or learning how to send signals in Morse code. 1563495 Blythe is making quite an impression and appears to be telling his mother everything. 14th April Dear Ma, Thank you very much for your two airgraphs dated 18th March, which I received last night. A week ago, I arranged with a shop in Goderich to have two one-pound boxes of chocolates sent to you, and I sincerely hope that you won't have to pay any tax on them. I don't know what the import tax situation is at the moment, but if you do have to pay something, I hope it won't be much. Goodness knows what they'll taste like, but you'll find out. I've had a letter from Aunt Jean saying that we should be delighted to have Frank and I for the weekend. I think she was very surprised to hear from me. 
Uncle Willie seems to be okay again, but I'll give you the full gen when I've gone and been and seen them. According to your aerograph, everything seems to be okay. I'm posting a letter along with this, and so I'm only writing this simple aerograph. Otherwise, I won't have much to say in a letter. TTFN. That's how we say tata for now in Morsma. Love to all, David. 15th April. Dear Ma, a second note. I haven't received much since writing to you, but I expect there will still be something to come from my last station. I don't know that I have anything really new to tell you this week, so I'll just ramble on. Charlotte Town is reasonable in size, but there isn't anything unusual to do there. However, I found myself a girlfriend, as I usually do at each new station, and so I don't find it difficult to pass my spare time. There's one thing. The bus service from the campsite into town is super. Best I've ever experienced since joining up. I'm sure I told you before that the food here is good. Well, I have an amendment to make. It's super duper. Probably the fact that it's brought to us and that we have a tablecloth, etc. makes quite a difference. I had a portrait photograph taken in officer's uniform the other day and I'll send you one as soon as possible. I also have some silk stockings. You see, I thought perhaps I might be coming home after my last course and I had an idea that it would be better to bring them home with me. But, as it might be some time before I get onto the boat again, I'll send you a couple of pairs periodically. If I don't send too many at once, you probably not have to pay tax. Crafty, eh? I hope everything is going well with everyone at home. As usual, I'm happy. I'll never forget the time I've had in the RAF. Well now, it seems that I have discovered one or two new things to say after all. Love to all. David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>